is the chief medical advisor to the U.S. President Anthony Fauci a leader in science or rigging the system of healthcare in favor of big pharma? What is pathogenic priming and how could the COVID vaccine be triggered to attack both virus and certain ordinary body parts? During the alarm generated by COVID-19, are health authorities fundamentally engaging in health malfeasance? In light of available science, is it wise for our children to trust the COVID-19 vaccine? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are returning to the question of the COVID crisis as we examine the situation through an original and underappreciated lens. For the bulk of the hour, we talk to Dr. James Lyons Wheeler, the CEO of the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge, who has conducted peer-reviewed analysis related to the COVID vaccine and is here to relate that it is far more dangerous to human health than most of the media is willing to broadcast. On this week's program, we are in deep trouble following the science behind the COVID catastrophe. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 3rd, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The COVID-19 crisis is marked by a public health emergency under WHO auspices, which is being used as a pretext and a justification to trigger a worldwide process of economic, social, and political restructuring. The tendency is towards the imposition of a totalitarian state. Social engineering is being applied. Governments are pressured into extending the lockdown despite its devastating economic and social consequences. There is no scientific basis for implementing the closing down of the global economy as a means to resolving a public health crisis. That comes from the article, The 2020-21 Worldwide Corona Crisis, Destroying Our Civil Society, Engineered Economic Depression, Global Coup d'État, and The Great Reset, by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted December 1st. Europe's high vaccine uptake falls well within the herd immunity range specified earlier this year by Dr. Fauci and other experts. With such an inoculation rate, the pandemic should be, if not over, then definitely under control. Instead, it is out of control. Many European nations, as well as countries in other parts of the globe, are sounding the alarm and imposing a new wave of lockdowns. If the vaccines were even remotely effective, this could have never happened in highly vaxxed territories. That comes from the article, Hard Data Shows the COVID Vaccines Don't Work, by Vasho 
Cole Mayer, posted November 30th, originally published in American Thinker. On this show, we've repeatedly mentioned the work by La Quinta Columna in Spain. That name means the fifth column, and it's a group of dissident researchers who have investigated these vaccines. Most importantly, they're the ones who studied a vaccine sample and found graphene oxide in it. Dr. Pablo Compra joins us. That comes from the article by Dr. Pablo Compra and Stu Peters, posted December 1st, originally published on Stu Peters' show at rumble.com. On Black Friday, alarmist media commentaries on rising COVID cases converged with dire reports of falling prices on the New York Stock Exchange. The plunge was attributed to claims that a new COVID variant was emerging in southern Africa. Building on this news, the televised talking heads covering stock markets were suddenly pressed into duty as number-rattling promoters of the latest stage in the ongoing COVID reset. The large amount of ink and airtime devoted to explanations of the investment implications of the new African variant add more evidence to the contention that the COVID reset is mostly about banking, finance, and debt manipulation rather than healthcare. Crucial to the success of the emerging scheme to keep the COVID reset in overdrive is the growing boosterism to promote booster injections. That comes from the article, Out of Africa on Black Friday, a boost for Omicron booster shots by Professor Anthony J. Hall, posted December 1st. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This is Michael Welch for the Global Research News Hour. And uh, today, uh, we're going to have a, a look at the uh, coronavirus, the, the COVID SARS-CoV-2, which is uh, plaguing the, the nation and the world. And uh, I'm very happy to have with me a, a man who's been doing a lot of this research. Uh, and his name is James Lyons Wheeler. Uh, he has 17 years of experience in biomedical research, serving primarily in the capacity of research study, uh, design and analysis. His primary interests are in the development of, of prediction models of uh, adverse outcomes of, of biomedical treatments, therapies, and biologic prophylactics, and in the uh, molecular and, and cellular uh, basis of disease. Uh, he was the founding editor and chief, editor in chief of the open access uh, journal Cancer Informatics and has served on the editorial board of numerous journals. Uh, his latest journal, uh, Science, Public Health, Policy, and the Law, brings forward views and analyses of the uh, goodness of fit between public health and medical practices in si and science. 
Uh, so he's with me now. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Wheeler, J Lyons Wheeler. Oh, and by the way, I, I forgot to mention, he's also served as an expert witness in cases of involving vaccine injury. So James Lyons Wheeler, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now, I, I guess I, I guess I want to first uh, get a sense of uh, th this explain a little bit about its background. Right. So um, when I left the University of Pittsburgh, it was 2014 and Bullet had hit and I had decided to do a deep dive into the science of the virus, the epidemiology, the virology, and I wrote a book, uh, Ebola and Evolving Story. And in the process of that, um, I became aware of some of the disconnects between uh, what I expected public health to be doing. You know, I had worked with people in the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. And <clears throat> I was in the Department of Pathology and the Department of Medical Informatics. And, you know, um, I, I saw some problems. One of the problems I saw with Ebola was actually pointed out by a former colleague of mine. I say former because I knew him long ago when we were when I was a postdoc and he was a graduate student. Um, <clears throat> he's a Yale University professor now, where, where the projections of the number of cases of Ebola in Africa, uh, where the, there would be 20 million uh, dead Africans by um, you know, December, January, December 2014 or, or January 2015. And he showed that, um, his colleague of mine showed that there was a problem with modeling, projection modelings. Uh, the modeling had neglected to include a parameter of social contagion. And a small, simple thing like that meant the end of the world versus, you know, okay, everybody, let's relax about this. We've got this under control. Um, that large of a disconnect between what science claimed or what, what people called science claimed and uh, the impact on the outlook for the world was something that I thought, you know, we, we can do better. Um, and we do better in science when we have open rational discourse, when we have opposing ideas, when different ideas are competed against each other in the open market, marketplace of ideas. And um, <clears throat> so the founding of IPAC, my, my goal was to create a research institution that was not influenced by profit motive. I had written a second book called uh, Cures Versus Profits uh, because Ebola was such a downer. I decided to write a book that explained specifically how we can succeed in biomedical research um, in spite of homogenizing influences and factors like profit and answering the stakeholders or, or shareholders. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, being a purist in science, as it were, I had a good run at the University of Pittsburgh, and I helped over 100 researchers put out their um, data into grant proposals or put out their data into peer-reviewed publications. Um, I had a really good run, and I know the soul of the scientists. The soul of the scientists is a good ethical researcher went into science specifically. He or she or other decided that they wanted to go into science specifically to reduce human health um, or in some way to benefit society. Um, however, the I was transitioning from graduate student to a postdoc at Penn State University. Um, 
the message came down from on high. A couple of strange messages came down. One was that they were not going to be doing any more pure research for the sake of knowing knowledge for the sake of knowing is passe. And the only the, the priority research coming would go to capitalizing on the investment that had been made in the NIH and in the other funding agencies like the National Science Foundation, so that society could begin to reap the rewards. And now that, that sounds good, but that also presumes that we know everything that we need to know that might come about through you know, pure academic research. And as an evolutionary biologist, it was also a bit disturbing to me that word came down from on high under the Bush administration that no funding was going to be put through the NSF that would go to any university or any grants, sorry, any grant that mentioned the word evolution. So what was happening was a kind of a two-pronged approach of, of uh, you know, paradigms that were political or not, you know, non-scientific paradigms that were going to set the agenda for science. And that's deeply disturbing to me. I had raised both of my children at the time until, you know, for, for the past 14 years. Uh, this was 2014, so I've been raising my boys for 13 years. Um, in science, being preparing, I mean, it wasn't my decision to have them go into science. It was theirs, it was very natural, and their mother was also a scientist. And the goal was to say, all right, somewhere on the planet, there must be an institution where people can do research just for the sake of knowing. It doesn't have to save the world just because we need to figure things out, how, do, how the universe works. Uh, you know, what are the sociological dynamics uh, among emerging cultures in the West? That's, that's a topic you can't even research. You're going to offend somebody because they have policy before science. We're not even allowed to ask questions in psychology that would be fundamentally important to understand how we can best help people that have metals in the brain because we're not allowed to admit that there's metals in the brain of people with autism and ADHD. So in writing the book, Cures Versus Profits, my goal was uh, to strike a balance and, and find the good stories. I was out seeking the best in biomedical translation research where people succeeded at doing good research in spite of profit motive. Now that sounds like a, a tall order, right? Yeah. Especially today. But I found them. And I, that book contains a lot of interviews of people that were on the cutting edge at the time and the questions that they asked me. I'm probably going to write a, a second version of that book 10 years later. Um, I'll start writing it up um, 2024, 2025, uh, just to kind of take a pulse on where we are now. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, at the time when the pharmaceutical companies were and still are charging far more for pharmaceutical products in Western countries and in, in other countries. And you might say, well, from a humanitarian perspective, the other people can't afford that, this and that. But what that really does is it drives up what our insurance and our insurance companies end up making money, whether they lose money or make money, uh, because they get bailed out by the government. No one talks about it. They hold on to losses from year to year. They hold on to gains from year to year. They cook their books from year to year, so it all leads out. So there's a lot of shenanigans going on to make the system work, so to speak. Mm. And politicians, I found, um, I think it was John, Donna Shalala and the former governor of Pennsylvania, they had a hot mic or something. It's all characterized in the book. It was a few years ago now, so it's kind of slipping from my mind. But um, and I, and I don't want to mention the, the, the governor's name because I might get the, the name wrong. But um, there, there was a woman scientist who had came, come forward with a good vaccine for Ebola 
And um, it was clear because she was a smaller company that she was not going to be able to garner much of the market. And the reason why Department of Human, um, Human Health Services, say HHS, was not going to really back and promote her particular initiative was that because she, had, couldn't, she hadn't figured out how to make a lot of money off of it. And that was caught by two politicians or at least appointed officials at the time. Um, but that was a reason. And so the goal of HHS is to make sure that the biomedical research that gets done, the translational research that gets done, where we go from the bench to the bench side and back, is the type that is guaranteed to make money, but things that won't make money won't go forward. That seems a very odd bias when human health is really the commodity that you're trying to optimize. And so there's a definite disconnect between science and public health policy, between science and the funding agencies, between, you know, there's a disconnect between the goals of medicine and the goals of public health and what's happened now that the companies have taken control of the regulatory agencies. So, you know, the regulatory capture of these agencies is 100%. Regulatory yeah. capture of the Congress is about 50% uh, or worse. So we're in, we're in a deep trouble if we expect, you know, and we have Anthony Fauci out here, you know, saying, I am the science, follow the science. This idea of follow the science, but what they're putting out is not necessarily founded on science. It should disturb every American to, to the core. Every concerned citizen in the world to the core should say, I pay my tax dollars. They're supposed to be doing science. Instead, they're promoting profitable answers. And what about the ones that are most effective? Mm. So yeah. well, you've, that you've, was the motivation for IPAC. Yeah, you've laid out a, a pretty good overview of what you're trying to do. And uh, and, and with regard to you, you mentioning Fauci just there, I, I want you to kind of zero in on, on the research uh, that you were doing, particularly the, the April 2020 you had a, a study that was uh, re that was related. Could you explain what what exactly that what was in that study and and how it it, it just generated a huge explosion of listenership? Well, thank you. So the the the, the study was actually uh, well, I, I was in the airport of uh, Seattle, Washington, on my way home from giving some conference presentations out in Washington. And there were some people from China, they were, they were male, they were men, uh, they were all about age 50 or above, and they were all masking. And one of them was uh, crumpled on the floor, falling his eyes up. And that made me, just before the plane took off, that made me look up what's happening in China. And that's when I found out that there was an announcement that there might be a virus in China and that there might be a problem. Um, <clears throat> and so I went home, promptly got sick, sicker than I've ever been before with respiratory illness. So I think I had contacted it in the airport. Um, but stayed at home, told my kids, you know, don't come to the house, stay at your mom's house and things like that. Um, got, I was sick for a good couple of weeks. And, and after that, I thought, well, you know, what are the lingering effects of these proteins and this virus? Because if they're going to make a vaccine, whatever vaccine they make, since there is no vaccine for coronavirus, they have the option right now to be very choosy about which parts of the proteins and the virus they're going to put in, not just which proteins. I mean, which proteins is not the right level of biological inquiry. The right level of biological inquiry is which epitopes, which, which immunogenic parts of the protein should we include in a vaccine? Sorry, well, what exactly do you mean by epitopes? Uh, an epitope is the part of a protein that will cause an immune reaction. So it's immunogenic. 
Um, and some, I mean, some of the epitopes or parts of the protein that will cause an immune reaction will be helpful that they'll induce immunity. And some might be harmful because they might not only induce immunity, they might also induce autoimmunity because the protein, that particular part of the protein might resemble human proteins in shape or sequence uh, to the point where the antibodies get confused and they can attack your own tissue. Now this is widely known, it's been known for decades, it's not controversial. Um, there are many, many examples of viruses that are, through infection induce autoimmunity and can trigger an onset of autoimmunity of different types. Um, and there's a good body of scientific literature among virologists, especially evolutionary virologists, who look at host pathogen interactions on the end of the, 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 the war, uh, the, uh, you know, the arms race between pathogens and their, and their host, in that pathogens might collapse the, the host's biology to create symptoms that facilitate the pathogen's survival and reproduction. So for instance, a cold virus, why, you know, why does it cause us to sniffle and sneeze? Well, if the cold virus is up in your nasopharyngeal tract and you're not sneezing and sniffling, then the cold virus is not gonna be very easily transmittable. And so that the, you know, when we think about then the effects of disease, if you go deep into virology versus, you know, viruses versus mammals, a mammal that becomes sick and kind of disabled and feverish would be tend and social animals will tend to be tended to will be tended to by other members of the same species or conspecifics as we call them. Again, increasing transmissibility and viruses, as we know, that tend to kill off and everyone that it infects, or those are not viable. It's a bad virus and it's not going to survive. So there's very good reason to believe that there are evolutionary explanations for. What we call disease, you know, the symptoms that we call disease, and what we want to treat with medicine and prevent. Um, and so, you know, some good examples. For instance, um, there's some evidence that some viruses can lead to onset of demyelination through, through their the bacteria. I forget it's a bacteria or virus at this point, but through the, the match between the proteins of the pathogen and some of the proteins, not just in the myelin proteins on our on our myelin sheath. Um, but also proteins and biological pathways that lead to myelin production. So there's many ways to break a biological pathway and systems biology, which I'm expert in and did for years and years at the University of Pittsburgh um, and helped clinicians understand the biological pathways that were impacting their patients. Um, tells us that there's many ways, just the same way there's many ways to break a Swiss you know, clock. There's many ways for us to disrupt a biological pathway. So if you get autoimmunity against a protein that you get one effect. If you get autoimmune against the protein receptor, you might get the same effect, right? You're shutting down the signaling from that protein. Anyway, uh, my goal was to look at the propensity of SARS-CoV-2 uh, viral proteins that were predicted by the published sequence, published by the Chinese, to determine which parts of the proteins might be immunogenic, that is epitopes that might cause an immune reaction that would be useful in a vaccine. And, so, and among those, which parts might be dangerous that might be wise to exclude from a vaccine. Mm. And of course, any discussion about vaccine safety, if you're going to have it 
you know, published in a peer-reviewed journal, you have to code it with all of these caveats. And well, this is just a theoretical concern, and you know, there's no evidence that there might be problems. You know, this kind of thing. So, what are you saying? This is like standard procedure that you'd go through all of that with, with the uh, the different aspects of it. That's uh, to do avoid autoimmune reactions. Actually, it's not. No. It's not. I was proposing in my paper that it should be. It should. Okay. You know, I was presenting the evidence that there's a problem, so the vaccine manufacturers had a chance. And Moderna, when I was doing my analysis, Moderna came out and said, "Listen, we made a, we made the vaccine in 72 hours. We're done." Pfizer had waited a few months. And Pfizer's mRNA vaccine. If you look at the mRNA sequence from the Pfizer vaccine, it's very, very different at the RNA level. Uh, probably still encodes many of the same amino acids. But I did an analysis after the publication when Stanford University published the mRNA sequence of the viral protein from uh, of the of the spike protein in the Pfizer vaccine. Um, it has fewer unsafe epitopes than Moderna. What I call unsafe epitopes, they're unsafe because they match in the proteins and they're predicted to cause autoimmunity. Now that paper of mine was. Uh, Tied, I think I have to say it was tied with an Italian researcher who came on and also proposed that, you know, um, uh, viral proteins in SARS-CoV-2 might, might be a problem due to autoimmunity. But this was a, a more general proposal. Mine was a very specific, detailed surgical analysis. And in that surgical analysis, I gave the vaccine manufacturers all the information that they needed to exclude specific parts of the protein. They're literally programming what the protein is going to be included in the RNA viruses or vaccine. Sorry, they could have recoded it and should have recoded it. And we might not see things like um, the heart effects, uh, you know, the, the myocarditis and pericarditis. In fact, one of the proteins. That I've found was Titan. And Titan is a is a, a a heart muscle protein that has a very 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 tight match to a SARS-CoV-2 spike protein epitope. And had they excluded that particular epitope or changed it just a few amino acids, perhaps we wouldn't be seeing the myocarditis and pericarditis. Darja Kamduk and others have looked at Titan and in their own analysis and confirmed it. Well, something that happened that, my, that I didn't expect, uh, Harvard University of Boston, General Hospital and others decided to challenge my assertions and test my hypotheses that perhaps these things could cause autoimmunity. And the study came out, Bojdani et al, uh, in the lab where they were looking with their assay at a particular aspect of the biology of these proteins. And then they found that yes, we're likely to get cross-reaction uh, with human proteins and viral proteins, very likely. And they, you know, I had I had neglected to include mitochondrial proteins. I didn't think about that. They include mitochondrial proteins. And they found even more matches between SARS-CoV-2 proteins. So what I was really trying to do was I was trying to provide a pathway to safety, but, you know, create a, do it in a very careful way where I didn't, you know, I wasn't, characterized as being anti-vaccine because I thought perhaps vaccines could be made safer than they were being made. And like you said, there was a cascade of studies that came out after that. Many, 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 many studies cited my work. It's the most cited work that I have, I think, where I'm a single author anyway. Um, and, you know, uh, the public paid for that analysis. They put the public through public donations. I'm not sure that I would have had time to write a grant proposal to the NIH to do some bioinformatics so that I could help 
you know, as an independent research scientist, if I was still at a university. So, you know, IPAC has, you know, carried its weight that way. And I have more studies coming. I have more studies coming on the same question. Um, for instance, one of the things we're writing up right now is an analysis of, to try to understand why the people that get serious COVID, you know, 78 or 79, 80% of the people that get serious COVID walked into the infection with prior autoimmunity. And so we know the proteins to their body that they're already attacking. These people have lupus or they have asthma, or they have some other autoimmune condition like that. Um, so we know the proteins that their immune system is already attacking or self-antigens. So what's the match between the known you know, self-antigens in the human uh, condition called autoimmunity and the virus? And we've done that analysis. And I found some very, very interesting things. Uh, some very, very interesting hits that said, well, wait a minute, here are some things that we didn't find with the inverse analysis. And, and in, in my April 2020 paper, I did not claim or make any statement that this is a comprehensive analysis of all of the unsafe epitopes or all of the ways. But the interesting fact is that um, there seems to be a genetic component to risk of autoimmunity. And it seems very clear to me that if my, let's say my Titan protein in my heart has a one amino acid or two amino acid difference that makes it more similar to the viral protein, I might be genetically more susceptible to uh, seeing autoimmunity uh, than other people who don't have, or maybe someone has in their Titan protein an amino acid or two change away from the viral protein compared to what, you know, kind of the baseline or the average human might have if there is such a thing. Wow. And, yeah, so, so this could explain why we have a genetic and environmental risk that comes together and comes off. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Uh, could you talk about uh, what you referred to as pathogenic priming and, and how that became involved and that how uh, the vaccine could come and, and trigger the reaction that you're talking about. Sure. So one of the things that we know about autoimmunity um, is that uh, the, like rheumatoid arthritis, people will go for months, even years, and not have a flare-up. With, with lupus, they'll be good for a long period of time, and then for unknown reasons, they'll simply flare up. And it seems obvious, and you know, when your body starts producing antibodies against a virus or a bacterial pathogen, um, it's doing what it's supposed to do. But if those antibodies are around and are present, and you are producing proteins that look like the viral protein at that time, then you might experience a flare-up. It's, it's kind of a one-to-one, you know, no-brainer logic here. And that's what is, in fact, what we see when we look at cross-reactive antibody studies of people with autoimmunity. And so... At the time that um, SARS-CoV-2 came out, there was some expressed concern. Um, while my paper was under review, there was a paper that came out that proposed perhaps there's a, a concern over what's called disease enhancement, specifically antibody-dependent disease enhancement. In antibody-dependent disease enhancement, you have a, a person that is already producing some type of antibody that's similar to the antibodies that they would produce, say, against the virus, perhaps through vaccination or even perhaps through prior infection. And they're already producing the infection, but somehow, physically, the antibody 
creates a relation, has a physical relationship with the virus in a manner that causes it to be more likely to invade certain cells in the body. Now, uh, disease enhancement um, was one phrase for it as a problem, but it's a specific mechanism, right? The, the antibody-dependent disease enhancement. Disease enhancement itself was was not talked about for, for years. It was talked about in the 1960s and 70s and even a little in the 80s. And then, then it somehow got changed into immune enhancement. The word disease enhancement is hard to find until you get to, you know, later on with COVID-19. Again, it came back because the, the idea that immune enhancement was the word, was the phrase that was using struck me as inaccurate, imprecise, and harmful because it was misleading. It's not, immune enhancement sounds like something that you drink vitamin C yeah. uh, drinks for, or go out and get sunshine, or you know, try exercise to stay healthy, take supplements. So, you know, words are very powerful when it comes to understanding. That's all we really have to be able to communicate with each other. So, what the the the, the image that came to my mind when I was thinking of doing the analysis and thinking about what was happening was that it, 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 in the animal studies for the SARS virus and the MERS coronavirus, they exposed the animals, right, to the, the attenuated viruses. And then they infected the animals and the animals died. Well, it's really clear then that the vaccine primed those animals to die. And they didn't die from immunopathology of the lungs. They didn't die from respiratory illnesses. They died from pancreatitis. They died from kidney failure. They died from hepatitis. They died from inflammation. You know, they had encephalopathy they, they, in, in the brain. So they died from conditions that were not typical of SARS and MERS infection. And so well, let me just, was, just, just to, to say, so basically you, when you talk about the, the, this, uh, this autoimmune reaction, I mean, you, we, we understand that they, the, the, the anti, the, there's uh, cells that go after the, uh, the actual disease, but they also go after parts of your own body that uh, have a, I guess, a, a, what a resemblance or something like that. And yeah. this is, it's, it's happening to the, the pancreas, pancreas to the brain to, to basically all other areas of the body as well. Well, no, it, it would depend on the animal. It would depend on, oh. yeah, it, it would depend on which proteins are more similar to whichever. Well, see the, the, the SARS, MERS and SARS-CoV-2 virus have more than just one protein. They have, in my analysis, I found 55 in SARS-CoV-2, I found 55 epitopes. So there's 55 ways to develop antibodies potentially for, for humans anyway. My, my analysis is human specific. Is this so those 55 that, ways could impact, sorry? Yeah, is this something that like having 55, uh, does that seem like an unusually large number given the, uh, you know, the, uh, resemblance to the uh, to the, uh, the the body the human body or is it something? Oh, that... well, hang on, hang on. So the fifty five that exist are just immunogenic epitopes. So every protein in the SARS virus, except for one, is immunogenic. Okay. That's not unusual because it's a foreign protein. Okay. Right. So the analysis that I used it was it's a predictive analysis. So then of those 55, some had many matches against human proteins and some had none. There was, I think there was one immunogenetic epitope in the entire virus that was not predicted to have an epitope that also matched humans. But there were other epitopes in those proteins that, that didn't match humans, okay? So no, it's not unusual for a virus the size of SARS-CoV-2 to have that many 
immunogenic epitopes. What I'm saying is that of the 55 that are there, there's 55 ways that an animal or a human, you know, could develop an immune response. And that's why natural immunity, when you get a, a SARS-CoV-2 infection, you have 55 redundant ways that you might be immune. As opposed to the spike protein, the spike protein only affords us five, at least from the Wuhan strain. So the, what, what the Omicron or Delta variants have now, I haven't analyzed that yet, but we're Spike proteins in the, the COVID. Yeah, yeah. So the COVID, vaccine, the COVID uh, virus and the vaccine only have five ways of giving you immunity. And we're not, I'm not really sure which ones are, are most cross-reactive to humans, but so, you know, I'm not sure which ones are most effective, if you will, at, at mounting an antibody response. So to answer your question, then, the, um, the, the, the risk of, of pathogenic priming was obvious. It really depends on which proteins they chose. If they chose MP3, they would have had more pathogenic priming or disease enhancement as a potential form of pathogenic priming. So, so uh, antibody-dependent disease enhancement. So pathogenic priming, my definition of it is that you have exposed an animal or a human being or something with an immune system to a antigen source, right? That then later on, when you're re-exposed to that antigen source, they have a bad reaction. A very simple example of this is when you eat a peanut butter sandwich after getting exposed to aluminum hydroxide. This is, you know, they develop autoimmunity in animals routinely with aluminum hydroxide. You take a rat or a mouse and you inject them with aluminum hydroxide and then inject them with peanut oil and then try to feed that animal peanut butter later, they'll develop anaphylaxis. Unless you treat the anaphylaxis, they'll die. So that is the priming, pathogenic priming. You're, you're, you're biasing the immune system against its own body. You're biasing the immune system in a way that causes disease in the individual if they then see the protein again. And it's really important to understand that, that the liability, if you will, the causal liability is an attribute of the initial exposure the human immune system and the secondary exposure. You need all parts, right? It's not as though they're saying that vaccines only can cause this, right? Vaccines might cause it, wild type infections might cause it as well. So which one's more likely? The problem with vaccination and in terms of pathogenic priming is that you end up stacking all of your IgG antibodies, all of it, you get a massive response. That's the goal of getting a good, you know, we want a high antibody response. Uh, well, they measure that with IgG antibodies, and if they're all stacked against the same antigen source, you're getting a very, very strong immune response. The body basically thinks that it's got viruses everywhere that have this one protein. And um, so, it, it, whereas with a natural infection, with an infection, if you can handle the infection well and survive it, uh, then you have multiple epitopes that are causing a diversity of IgG, a diversity of IgM, and then you get a diversity of B cells and a diversity of T cells, and then you have redundancy in your immunity. And now we see uh, a study that was just published. I wrote an article on Substack on my newsletter, Popular Rationalism, outlining that the data show that if you have had a vaccine and then you get a, an infection, or if you have COVID-19 and get a reinfection, that the vaccinated are 10.6 times more likely to have serious COVID, critical COVID, or die than the people who have natural immunity. 
in that sense, natural immunity is superior. But that doesn't mean that the vaccinated are at higher risk overall of, of dying compared to. So we've got to be careful about what we're saying here. So scientifically, um, pathogenic priming has that that idea has taken root in the scientific literature, and I'm gratified to see that. I just really wish that the vaccine manufacturers had I had reached them, and that the science had caught up to the, to their efforts to create a vaccine because. Then, then the human pain and suffering is happening, likely happening because uh, the exposure to viral proteins with unsafe epitopes might have been reduced. And if we can't do that with you know upgrades to the vaccine, they want to chase Omicron with the new vaccine. Well, hopefully they'll take out the unsafe epitopes. So they, if they can update it, then then perhaps well, it's not too late. Wow. Um... Now, you, 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 excuse me. You, you mentioned uh, things about, uh, for example, Fauci. Uh, you know, not really doing things. Uh, uh, basically, that um, that there, the way this is, has proceeded, uh, that uh, you you may have warned uh, different individuals about what's proceeding from this, and you uh, you they didn't react the way you you would have hoped or or, or should have done. I mean. Can I get a sense of, of, of how you assert that uh, these decisions by the, the health authorities are being made uh, in, at odds with, you know, what the science says about it? You know, I mean, is it, well, is it deliberate malfeasance or is it just sort of a, oh, they're so busy, they're not paying attention? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I'm really bad at, Michael, is guessing other people's motivations. Right. I, so there's a black box behind anyone's behind anyone's eyes that you know people can think one thing and say another. But I did I did the same analysis for Zika when when, when NIAID was funded by Congress billions of dollars for Zika vaccine that we all thought was going to be necessary, and that's another mystery because Zika went away the year after it came in after the vaccine money was released. It just went away. There's still, you know, the, the Zika infections were happening, but the microcephaly just went away in Brazil. Um, and I had actually traced the potential cause of the microcephaly in Brazil to an experimental whole cell pertussis vaccine that was being used in the slums uh, in northeastern Brazil. I have emails and correspondences from the scientists there, Valdi uh, uh, Diaz. Her last name too. It's been a couple of years, um, but anyway, um, the money came for the Zika vaccine, and I thought, okay, well, wait a minute. I better do this kind of analysis. This is before COVID. This is, you know, I better have this kind of analysis done. And I sent a letter to Anthony Fauci. This is before everybody knew Anthony Fauci's name. And I said, listen, if you create a vaccine and you include all of these epitopes in the vaccine for Zika you may induce autoimmune encephalitis, autoimmune encephalopathy. Um, and that could be bad because, you know, if you're going to vaccinate pregnant women and they develop antibodies uh, or children and they develop antibodies and they match human brain proteins and perhaps the, pathophysi the pathophysiology or the disease, the pathogenicity of the Zika viral proteins that cause problems during infection might actually also happen during injection. And so I was giving them a fair warning and say, be careful. And I didn't get a letter back. Not that I'm not an egoist, so I'm not really concerned that I didn't get a letter back. But um, 
the next week, Dr. Fauci announced that they needed eight more months to create the vaccine. And he had announced that they were going to have it within weeks prior to my letter. So I was hopeful that perhaps, you know, we headed off a disaster with, you know, injecting unsafe proteins into people. But, you know, this whole awareness now that's happening, people, because of the effort of myself and others that are working on this, and many people have been working on autoimmunity from viral proteins or pathogen proteins for years longer, longer before I, much for decades before I got involved. Um, but now I think people are starting to really appreciate that it's important not to compare the safety of the vaccine and the, vi and the virus, which is safer to like go the route of infection or injection, but instead to enter into it the unsafeness or the, the risk of being exposed to viral proteins or pathogen proteins. If the unit of concern over risk is the protein, then you're looking at the entire dynamic of the events that might happen. And that's where I really flourish in terms of things like machine learning and you know multiple multiple pathways of probability, decision trees, and all that stuff. Because then we can say, okay, if you have prior autoimmunity, you're probably going to get serious COVID. If you get serious COVID, you have a higher likelihood of death. So, what's the best choice for you if you have a risk of serious COVID? Well, the prevalence of the disease is low. If the prevalence of disease is low and you take steps to protect yourself from getting infected, that's probably a good thing. If you, if everybody with autoimmunity vaccinates, they're all being exposed to potentially unsafe episodes. So you change the probability of, of being exposed to unsafe proteins to 100%. That's why it's really disturbing to me that the goal of vaccinologists is to vaccinate everyone with no exception. So Australia just made an announcement that they're gonna to try to vaccinate everyone. Uh, Austria uh, as well. There no exceptions. Well, 100% vaccination means, by definition, you will find every single person in that population that cannot tolerate those unsafe epitopes, those unsafe proteins, or excipients in the vaccines. So people are allergic to some of those things. So, you know, it, people really have to just back off, really, literally back off of their over, overreach, their overarching assumption that, you know, it's it's one thing to say that we're all cookie cutters and one size fits all. No, their the entire premise of universal vaccination during a pandemic is flawed, unless you have a vaccine that's 100% effective. Because the, if, you, if you vaccinate with a leaky vaccine, it is absolutely known, for, especially for things like rhinos, uh, um, 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 respiratory or, or, or uh, viruses, in animals, say for chickens even, that if you vaccinate the peak of the outbreak, then the virus is going to escape the vaccine. Yeah. It's, it's a foregone conclusion. So the madness, it, to me, it's, it's epidemiologic medical madness that's at play here is, well, we answer to our investors. We have to, you know, we answered, we've made such an investment in the vaccine program. We have to keep it going. It's the Concord films. And we still have science, logic, and reason to use here, right? It's not as though we've given up on that. Yeah. And the, 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 the mantra, follow the science, follow the science. I'm all for that. But that requires, science requires skepticism. Yeah. If you say follow the science and you're, not, and you're disallowing skepticism, you're not following science. It's the most yeah. ironic kind of mantra that I've seen. It, it seems like there's a, a lot of a, an emphasis is on... Um, getting the experts in unison that the vaccine is good and anyone who says well wait a second 
they 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 are marginalized, if not outright, yeah. uh, you know, demonized as being a anti-science or a, a maverick of some sort. Um, so I mean, now now we're looking at the, the vaccination of children, uh, aged five to eleven, and it seems to me that the risk is very low of these uh, children getting the vaccine, and yet these. Uh, you know, it, it, it's coming down in such a way that, uh, I mean, our people are going to be made to feel guilty about not getting the vaccine for their yeah. kids. Uh, I don't know. I mean, can you, uh, you know, go from there and say exactly how this vaccination program is, uh, you know, going into the future is, is going to demolish any opposition from people like yourself or from, you know, all the other figures who are starting to stand up and, and say yeah. something. Yeah. Well, first of all, let's 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 go backwards in time rather than forwards in time on this issue because the CDC website to this day says that back, uh, that children can transmit SARS-CoV-2. But if you then look at the three references that they put up there, each of the three references that are on the CDC website about you know SARS-CoV-2 in schools states clearly that it's a hypothetical concern. It's a theoretical concern. They state clearly that children may, and the uh, the logic is that they have high, they can have high, they can have high viremia if they are infected, and therefore they may transmit. That's not science. That's not data. That's not transmission rate estimation. Uh, is it fourteen percent? Is is it twenty eight percent? Is it thirty percent? Is it eighty percent? You know, if you have high viremia, what what if you're infected? What if then you are innate immune system? dispenses with the virus handily so it's unfair i think it's un the best way that i can say it it's unfair to put the risk of the vaccine on the children with no benefit to them mm. that's absolutely medically wrong it's scientifically wrong from a research perspective it's wrong and then to mandate it to try to mandate this vaccine where there's all risk and no benefit is a clear violation of the code of federal regulations protecting human subjects research it's absolutely, it's, it's uh, 45 CFR 46, you can look it up. Wow. So we, we have a ways to go. People want me to say that again, because I said it so fast, 45 CFR 46, look it up. Look up the common rule, read the entire website. Don't just look at it and don't, don't write to me and say, can you interpret this for me? Send it to your lawyer and have your lawyer interpret it for whoever's trying to manage the vaccine on you. The most powerful weapon that we have right now is that there is a core of ethics in biomedical research that says you cannot coerce anyone to human subject studies. And by any definition, not only is the vaccine, even though it's out there and people are getting it, it's still experimental. It's under EUA. Yeah. Uh, the fact that they did a kind of rubber stamp of Pfizer doesn't protect them from the fact that post-market surveillance is human subjects study. And also, I want to point out, I want to point out that the PCR test has never been approved by the FDA, and it, it too is an experimental medical procedure. So every person that has had is it would be forced by the OSHA rule, for instance, to get a, a, a PCR test is actually being coerced by their employer. And I would like to see letters going out from lawyers to employers who try to enforce that OSHA rule and say, fine. Thank you for your memo saying that you have to vaccinate or test. Both are experimental. And so I'm going to sue you for wealth, for damages, psychological, lost wages, whatever, for issuing a coercive memo trying to force me into the study of the efficacy of these tests or the efficacy or the safety of the vaccines. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. 
And so I think we're going to win. I, you know, you, 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 you call it opposition. I don't see what my, my position is not the opposition. The opposition is this new idea that we could just run roughshod all over the standard, stayed, tried and true tenets of bioethics. They're the opposition and they're losing bad. Well, there's uh, these institutions, uh, the CDC and the FDA. Um, uh, how, I mean, because most people, as I, as far as I can see, they're so respected, you know, they're, they're health authorities, listen to what you're being told. Uh, certainly there's no other agency uh, that, that is, have, has the same level of this prestige as those institutions. And so we just do what they tell us to do. But uh, what would you say uh, about how the CDC and the FDA are actually, uh, you know, undermining human health for the, the, the good of profit, I guess you could say. Well, the first thing that I would say is that they used to have prestige. They used to have kind of an untouchable, you know, the CDC says so it must be true. And that's all, that's gone. That's dissipated. That's, that's gone to the ether. There, it's, it's amazing. How many conversations can, can we have with people to say, oh, you know, those drugs that they, the pharma wants to put into grandma? It's, it's all profit. It doesn't really benefit. You take one drug and it leads to a side effect, and then the doctor gives them another drug and it leads to a side effect. And then you take another drug for that side effect and it leads to another side effect. And that's why most people who are 80 or above have about 20 different drugs. And everyone's, oh, yeah, 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 that's pharma for you. But the same exact companies put out a vaccine and they're saints. These companies actually donate uh, $27 million a year to the CDC Foundation and the NIH Foundation. And most of the money for the FDA comes from fees from these drug companies to have their drugs looked at. Sorry, what was the percentage again? 20, well, most of, for FDA, the majority of the money that FDA has, the revenue, comes from fees, processing fees, for drug companies to have their, 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 their medical products uh, evaluated. Um, but something like $27 million goes to CDC Foundation. What is the CDC Foundation? The CDC Foundation is an alleged not-for-profit organization that exists within the U.S. government. How does that even work? How does how can a government have a not-for-profit arm and take donations from companies that they're supposed to be regulated? That doesn't work. Uh, the uh, uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, which takes a vote every year on what vaccines to add to the vaccine schedule for children and adults. We did a deep dive analysis with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on the individuals on ASIP about three, three or four years ago. And every single member of ASIP had a direct financial conflict of interest with pharma. They were there representing their particular company, except for one. It was the guy that was representing the US military. So if they take a vote and, and then they say, okay, we're gonna approve this vaccine. Uh, there's cases where we have video of them taking the vote about the and approving the vaccine and then discussing safety afterwards as, as an afterthought. And there, there was a new adjuvant that was coming on to a flu vaccine and they approved of that. And then somebody said, yeah, but I, after they voted, and it was a unanimous vote. You know, it's like a club, you know, you vote against my vaccine, I'm going to vote against yours. Nobody's going to want to vote against somebody's vaccine. Plus, when you vote for a new vaccine, that opens up a market for the other companies to throw their vaccine into the mix too. But after the vote, 
they said, uh, one guy spoke up and said, what about these heart problems these people are having? After the vote. <laughs> and, and so the problem is, and you can read some about some of this in Bobby Kennedy's book right here, The Real Anthony Fauci. Yeah, over your right shoulder there. <laughs> um, the, the, got... the, problem, the problem is that Anthony Fauci and all of these colleagues at the NIAID and all the people at the CDC, they're entitled to profit to the tune of $150,000 per year. Profit, actual bona fide profit based on technologies, drugs, vaccines, tests, whatever that they brought forward using taxpayer dollars. Is that is that fair? Is it right that they can have that kind of a personal financial conflict of interest? No, it's not right. It's not right by any definition. When I was at the University of Pittsburgh, they came into my office with a memo. They sent a memo to my mailbox. They said, you can't take any pens. You can't take any coffee mugs. You can't take anything from anybody that might sell something for your laboratory. Okay, fine. I can't be. I can't go out to lunch with somebody. Well, you know, I, I used to be able to go out to lunch, and they, I would consider their products. Whether I was going to analyze multiplex, uh, you know, biomarkers using Luminex or some other kind of platform, or maybe I was going to buy this kind of mass spec, or maybe that kind of sequencer. I used to be able to go out to lunch and have a kind of social moment with them. And I wouldn't. I'm not advocating for conflicts of interest. I'm totally against it. But I'll tell you that the person who actually harmonized bioethics when it came to things like pens and notebooks and stickers for your refrigerator, magnets for your refrigerator, uh, he is one of the most vaccine risk aware people that I know. Mm. And uh, it, 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 I'm dumbfounded. When I did the Peers versus Profits and did the other books that I wrote, I was dumbfounded at the fact that CDC could say, no, we're not going to test your PCR or we're not going to test your new protein-based assay for Ebola, for instance, because we have our own and we're in competition with you. That, that's ludicrous. Yeah. Well, you, you've really kept this, uh, you know, the, the science in this argument. Uh, I think we're out of time now, uh, but I, I hope we can have you back at a later point. Maybe we could, you know, examine your work as it goes ahead. I know you have, uh, in 2022, uh, you're going to launch a, an online comprehensive a health outcomes survey study, which uh, you know maybe maybe we could chat about that. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, thank thank you thank you for bringing that up. I'd like to try to promote that actually. So at IPAC, uh, you can go to ipaknowledge.org, and you can find that and other initiatives that if you want to see us, you know, do comprehensive analysis of health outcomes following COVID nineteen, or and compare those to comprehensive analysis of health outcomes following COVID nineteen vaccination. Uh, we can use a lot of support. It's a big project, and we really have not been able to gain much steam with fundraising, so we need your help. Okay. James Lyons-Weisler, uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Michael, and I'll be happy to come back. Thanks so much. It was an honor. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.